Hey, everybody, and welcome to my JavaScript story. This week, we're talking to Jared Palmer. Jared, do you want to say hello? What's up? How's it going? It's going all right. Now, we've had you on a couple of shows. We had you on React Roundup twice, talked about Razzle, and then about React Suspense, and then React Native Radio, you talked about Formic. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Recall those all all great episodes of you if you're looking for some still relevant. Yeah, all of them been great. So what's up, man? How you been? I've been good. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call to help me find a developer who can build it. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile developers that you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to g2i.co to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to g2i.co to learn more about G2i. uh, What's new with you? So uh, the newest thing is that I have taken a step back from the agency world. running the Palmer Group to work full-time on Formic Inc., which is uh, very, very exciting. Yeah, that's cool. So do you want to just tell us a little about that before we get into the interview? And uh... Sure. So yeah. Formic is the world's most popular form library for React and I guess maybe all JavaScript now. Um, had about like 26 million downloads from NPM. Oh, wow. 700,000 a week now. It's exploded. Um, it's used by NASA and Lyft and Walmart and Airbnb and just like a bunch of awesome companies. And yeah, it's just totally exploded. We just passed 20,000 stars on GitHub. Um, so yeah, Formic has been open source has been rocking. And um, the new company is going to be focused on building and helping, de- sorry, empowering developers to build better forms in all aspects of uh, the application process and development process. And so what that means is more specifically is not just, uh, you know, the open source project is not going anywhere, but there's going to be a whole host of new awesome stuff built on top of it that will enhance developer workflow experience, also user experience, um, ranging from storage to analytics to some automation tools, some no code tools, and uh, some new sort of form building tools as well. So that's what we'll be focused on. Very cool. <clears throat> yeah, it's always interesting to see how people figure out how to monetize the work they're doing on open source. And um, I think it's important because you can't always count on donations or, you know, what other, yeah. whatever other systems are out there. So totally. I just, I don't, I think for the people that donations work for, that's awesome. I just don't yeah. think that's a sustainable business to be in. Um, so instead, going to sell software on the internet. <laughs> Makes sense uh, to me. Something I've been doing for a long time to clients and just uh, now finally get to, you know, share it with everyone else. Very cool. So uh, let's just dive in and kind of get your story. I want to go back before Formic and JavaScript and all that stuff and just kind of get the story of how you got into programming. Sure. So I took a really circuitous route. So I guess I took faked my way through like a high school Java class here and there but never did anything serious. Um, mm-hmm. I took, uh, in my final, final year at Cornell, 
I took a, I had need, I wanted to take a couple of courses and I, it was in my senior year and I could take a few pass fail. Uh, so basically there would be no grade in my, in my actual GPA. It wouldn't impact my GPA. It would just be like, did you pass or not? And all you needed right. to do was like a C. Right. Um, and so there's not a lot of pressure. And I took my, in, in, I took a like introduction to programming, which is like a Python 101 course, mm-hmm. CS 101 basically, uh, which is a Python course. Yep. And I could ask them that. Um, and I liked it a lot so much so that I took this 102 course, which was yeah, like introduction to Java, object oriented programming in Java. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but, but I really wasn't going to be a programmer. I majored in economics in school. I thought I was going to be a banker. I interned at Goldman Sachs in the investment banking division in the most like in, in the financial institutions group doing mergers and acquisitions and valuations for the like insurance companies and banks, which does not sound super awesome. And it doesn't, <laughs> but, it pay, but it pays extremely well. Yeah, um, sure. Like six figures out of school. No, like that was guaranteed. So that was a lot. Right. And, um, but the hours were grueling. All of the like finance mythology was still like the case at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, um, I was very fortunate in the sense that I am born and raised in Manhattan and I knew I was going to go live back at home and with my parents in Manhattan, which is unusual. Um, right. So what that meant though, is that I didn't really need to cover rent for my first two years out of school basically. And I kind of made that sort of deal with my parents. that I was going to stay at home for the first two years. So cognizant of that, I had this idea in my senior year of college um, after my internship at Goldman to like uh, to build this app. And I really, again, not that good at code. I didn't really know anything how to build right. anything. I did like I done enough. You know, it was it's 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 CS. It's not actually like building stuff, right? It's very that's a very different sort of thing. Academic CS yep. versus versus actually like building stuff, like the free code camps and stuff like. It's just a different style of learning. Uh, obviously, those resources don't didn't exist either. So there's that. But uh-huh. let's continue the continue down this road. So I have this idea for this like lock screen app. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Basically on. On Androids, back around the time this was all happening, which is, I guess, 2012 into 2013, you could really build like a custom lock screen application that would replace your default lock screen. And this was pretty cool, and there were a bunch of them. And so I had this idea that, you know, people were looking at their phones more and more, and I noticed this, and the little investment banker me was like, huh, well, people look at their phones like 150 times a day. That's like a lot, and it's only going to get worse. What if we put some content there, and then like maybe one day – down the line, we put an ad somewhere there. Um, on paper, like the, if you think about just how many, how frequently you look at your phone, if that became like an actual accepted behavior, there that'd be pretty profitable business. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, I got a friend of mine, one of my fraternity brothers, to help me build a prototype because I really didn't know enough Java to do Android. Android Java is like a little bit different than the t- Java they yeah. taught you in class. Yeah, at the time it was called Dalvik or something. And then, and it was, it was a different flavor. And then I think now it's Kotlin that you're looking at for that stuff. But. Right, yeah. So you definitely, you definitely use Kotlin nowadays. They think they support both, but it was definitely just different yeah. than the Java you're going to learn in a CS class um, for all the reasons. And so anyways, I got my friend Ross to prototype it. Uh, it worked, it worked really well. It was pretty cool. We had this little CMS that was controlled by I want to say it was like Drupal or something, but anyways, like we had different feeds. You just subscribe to the stuff you were interested in. Like uh, if you were interested in sports or if you're interested in 
the Yankees or if you were interested in fashion or like you could, they're basically like channels of your lock, basically like a lock screen of lock screen wallpapers you could subscribe to. And then every time you looked at your phone, you'd get a brand new image. Um, that was like full 1080p at the time. That was a lot to deal with. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a cool little app. Uh, ended up sort of showing the prototype to a couple companies. One of them was Unilever. Unilever is like a massive mm -hmm. consumer products company. They make a whole host of um, like deodorants and soaps and other stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, anyways, they were in this sort of brand spending uh, sort of phase. And they were like... Cool, build us a prototype. Here's $160,000 for Axe. And I was like, why would Axe want a lock screen app? They're like, no, don't, don't worry about it. Just, just build it. We'll see what happens. See if we like it or whatever. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. And they're like, we may use it for this other brand called Lifeboy, which is like a large soap, a large soap brand. And I was like, okay. They all just like, just build it. All right, so we built it. Then I ended up have, connecting with um, the folks behind American Idol. And they were like, sweet. Like we have tons of tons of unused photos from all the shows. Like we'd love to have an app because our fans are crazy at the time. Mm -hmm. American Idol, I think it's back now, but it was, I was, they were like, yeah. Anyways, they were like, we build one for us too. And so I was like, okay, done. So I ended up selling that and getting more than I would have made as an analyst. And that sort of kickstarted me down this path of te technicality. I'll say I was doing all the design for the app at the time. And what happened was I was working with a dev shop, actually. I, 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 didn't, I still didn't code this stuff. I was working with a dev shop. And I was getting kind of frustrated because the designs that I was, I was using Photoshop at the time and the designs that I was setting them, they weren't really doing like in a pixel. They weren't really following that. Like it wasn't, I was mm -hmm. giving them pixel perfect designs and they really, really, really weren't actually like following the designs. It was making me very mad. Uh, and so around this time and around, I'll say it's like 2014 now, early 2014, like the Node.js revolution is, you know, in full force. And right. tools like Framer um, just came out and like InVision are just coming out and like Sketch is taking off, Origami, Facebook's tool, all these new prototyping design tools. And I discovered Framer. Framer, if you're not familiar with it, now it's like a design tool that's like Sketch um, or Figma, but it lets you use React components. But before that, it's like OG Framer, was a CoffeeScript library developed at Facebook to help them prototype apps, which is exactly what I needed. Right. What made it different than other prototyping tools was that it just used code. It was just a CoffeeScript framework. And also what made it unique was that in its documentation, they assumed that you were a designer and so that you knew nothing. And right. they sort of taught you actually how to code, and they still do that to some extent uh, in their docs. Uh, coffee script for the purposes of framer and what ended up happening was this like clicked for me because in the old version of framer i mean it was like code on, it was basically like code sandboxes now but for this coffee script framework you know you make a change it happens immediately you make a change it happens immediately you can play with it on right. the left and on the right and it was pretty imperative code but that means that it's super easy to whip stuff up really quickly right. um it had state machines it had logic and it had functions it was coffee script right it was just javascript Mm -hmm. But it was CoffeeScript for this, and it's the specific library. And, you know, based on, I hadn't really coded that too much since then, but I had done like little websites and stuff because I was trying to like save some money here and there. So like, but I was still kind of afraid of JavaScript until then. And then after Framer, I just started building more and more higher fidelity prototypes. Um, and I started sharing them in the Framer fa Facebook group, which I think still exists. But anyway, there's an awesome Framer um, Facebook group for the OG Framer and people were sharing prototypes and you could open them and download the code and inspect the code. 
And that just sort of put me on this, like this sort of more and more technical path. Um, anyways, I stopped doing the lock screen app for a whole host of reasons. Google changed some of the APIs didn't seem as like it was going to go anywhere. So I actually interviewed at Facebook to be a product designer because I was pretty, pretty like I'd done some stuff that was popular in the, in the framer Facebook right. group. And I had worked on a bunch of this, this app. I had all these prototypes. I had done some freelance stuff on the side, but not really. Anyways, I got the Facebook interview and I go to Facebook, go out to SF, go out to Menlo Park, do the thing. Anyways, I, I thought I did pretty well in the interview. Basically, they said, they said they thought I did well too. They were like ready to hire me. They were just like, so here's the deal. You really haven't worked at a large company before or in any sort of like structured design sense. Like I, if you thought about my resume until this point, it was like investment banker turned designer builds app, <laughs> sells app, right. has like mini exit. Like who the hell is this kid? Right? Like what is yeah. this? Like it's like, yeah, this looks, he's saying all the right things and doing all the right things and his designs are good, but like what? Right. So it was like, they just, they needed, I guess, an extra, like one job of, of, of confirmation. Like someone else right. would have to take the risk is what they basically said. And so I got the phone call and I still have this piece of paper actually. And just said, and basically their feedback was, we love you come back in six to nine months, do some, get some more Facebook like experience. So I was like, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> this is the recruiter. I was like, you're telling me to go to a job for six months and then bail. And they're like, well, no, 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 no. We want you to get like Facebook experience. So I was like, okay, so I freelance then. And I was like, oh. and then they're like, yes, do some freelancing, stuff like that. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do that. Um, sure. So anyway, I like started freelancing for like my friend, his app called Servi, which I ultimately served to, um, got bought by Resi. It was like a restaurant reviews app, but I helped them prototype oh, wow. a bunch of stuff. Like their, their like rating system and again, all framer stuff. Right. But as like my framer prototypes got more and more complex, uh, I basically discovered like the node ecosystem at the same time. Right. Um, and so like, MP, like basically for framer was all one file until you wanted it not to be. And so then you could use like NPM modules and just modules in, in general. And then eventually you needed Webpack to pack them all up together. Right. Uh, and I did the sort of grunt phase too um, as well and gulp and all that other stuff as well. But eventually like I discovered this and then eventually I just stumble upon react uh, and I get frustrated because my prototypes are like, I don't know. They're, they're really, really high. They have like, they're loading data in from the outside. They're, they're basically apps, right? I just don't know how else to express myself. So finally I pick up react and I'm like, Oh, okay. I start to understand this JavaScript thing somewhere in there. I had done some like Firebase apps and parse apps. And around this time, basically when I start freelancing, um, I keep building like more and more breakable toys. Um, there's this theory of build that if you, that you want to build breakable toys when you learn something, a breakable toy is something that you can play around with that has absolutely no consequence if you break it. And these are very powerful learning tools because you can, you can tinker. Right. And that, and I did, and I did exactly that for like the better part of, I don't know, six to nine months as I was freelancing, I was just spending all day just tinkering with stuff, learning as much as possible on my own. And then I can talk about how I did all that in a little bit, but just to sort of get to how I got to be a developer, I guess, uh, what set me off is what was frustrating about freelancing was that I was just doing the design stuff, but these people that I was talking to had like full problems. They had like, they had full stack issues. Uh -huh. It would be like, I want to build an app. I was like, well, I don't know right. how to build an app, but I can do the designs. Like that's not a great value right. proposition, right? So I kept having that conversation like 16 times. And I was like, shoot, maybe I actually need to just like get my stuff together. So that's where I discovered like Parse and Firebase. And eventually I remember the day I like took a node tutorial and it just clicked and I was like, wait, that's it. You only have to just, just like node server.js. And it just, <laughs> yep. It just, that just, that's all you have to do. 
and then you can, and then like, you could just Heroku deploy. Wait, mm -hmm. what? And so then it just like immediately clicked. And from there it was like off to the races. I probably like had like three or four clients within like the first month or so all building like full stack applications with um, all different sorts of stuff. Um, parse at first, then I graduated from parse cause like I didn't really want to deal with parse. Then Mongo and express and then Postgres and, that kicked off, uh, basically that ended up growing into the agency that I've been, that I was at for the last five years. Um, right. and that's where, um, again, based, based on the fact that I didn't go, that I didn't graduate with a CS major, um, mm -hmm. and I hadn't worked at a tech company before. What I thought to myself was, well, how do I like get validation, um, in the tech community? And my strategy for that was open source. And so through a lot, throughout all this like agency work, my plan was to just open source as much stuff as possible. And the reason for that was again, to validate my own technical skill and then also to attract other developers to work on at, at my agency or for me, for me without, you know, cause we're in New York, we're competing as Facebook and Tumblr and mm -hmm. at the time and, 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 and <clears throat> AOL and all these media companies and Squarespace and just like, and Google and all these big players, right? So we have to have some sort of differentiating factor at the Palmer Group. And my idea there was to be like, to out open source all these companies. Right. Um, and that's basically where all, all of my open source portfolio sort of came from was in service to that. I thought of it as like an HR expense effectively um, or, or tool mechanism. Um, right. But yeah, so basically I got more and more technical and then throughout the five years or so at the agency, um, starting again, sort of in 2015, I was coding. You can see this on my contribution graph on GitHub if you want to see something crazy. Uh, you can see what 10,000 hours looks like. Um, <laughs> see when I started to become a developer, and you can see it just goes green. The entire thing goes green. And I coded every single day for six to eight hours, uh, probably five to 12 hours ranging right. for the better part of like two and a half to three years straight. And I was just an animal. I was an absolute machine. Um, just absorbing as much information as possible. It was interesting too, because even though I was like in the design space, because mm -hmm. I'm sorry, coming from the design space, I actually didn't know that many engineers. And so I remember there was a whole host of, and this was like some of these resources that are here now and podcasts and stuff like this, even this didn't exist. And I remember there was like definitely like a full year where I had all this knowledge that I didn't, that I didn't know anybody else who knew. And like, that was weird. Like there were, th there were entire concepts and systems that I had never said out loud. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, like, and then sometimes I pronounce words wrong because I, again, I, I hadn't talked to anybody about it. Um, but totally self-taught everything. And that's, and that, and that sort of came out of playing with live ammo is the best way I describe it. Like just hitting it every day and figuring it out, bashing, nice. it, bashing my face into Google. And then also being lucky and fortunate enough to have like, successively harder projects that just sort of came my way. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that I think was just somewhat luck, but you need some of that sometimes. Um, and then I ended oh, yeah. up getting like a massive, massive contract and that's what really kickstarted the agency. And so that's what really put things into full gear. But yeah, so that's like the short of it. That's how, and then based and then, and then yeah, so the rest is sort of history. I never went back to Facebook, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but what I thought was cool was I did get, I have gotten some recruiting emails obviously. And I always thought, I thought those were funny. Oh, there uh, you to go. be an engineer, to be an engineer of all things. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so anyways, yeah. So that's the like, uh, short, the short history, but, um, yeah, we can elaborate on any aspects of it. I'm sure you like, I don't know. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, just just to begin with, I mean, what, what kinds of open source did you start with? Because a lot of folks, they'll look at something like Formic and the level of adoption that it has and things like that. And they're going to be like, there's no way I can get there. But you yeah. started somewhere, right? And so, yeah. yeah so how, how did that kind of grow into something like Formic? It's a great question. Um, so I had a, I've been like kind of obsessed with GitHub for a while at the time. And like, I was just like really into the ecosystem and community. And I think that is the best way to get into open source is to just get into the community and start writing like blogging. I actually didn't do this, but I would, if I, I would go back and do that more, just start blogging about your learning, mm -hmm. start working on documentation, start basically help contributing to larger libraries. I'd say I didn't do this, but this is what I would do if I advise people to do now. Right. What I did was I built the boilerplate and now we have toolkits like create react app and Next.js. And, mm -hmm. but before we had discovered like the power of, I guess, webpack stuff, um, we all had boilerplates and everyone had their own react boilerplate oh, yeah. um, at the time. It was like at one, and then one was better than the next. I do think the person that won the boilerplate game was Max Stoiber. Um, he had like the, the, I think he actually did win that. Like he has like a 20,000 star boilerplate. I think he still has it. Um, but anyways, it was a rat race, total rat race, right? It was just who could do the best Webpack DX experience, like developer experience explosion. And I had one and mine was a little unique. Um, mine was an S, a, a server rendered React app, a server rendering uh, boilerplate that actually had code splitting. And this was in 20 probably the middle of 2015, end of 2015, basically. Oh, nice. Um, or maybe early 2016. Uh, but yeah, no, like before Next.js, this had like this similar kind of like code splitting with and with React Router and data fetching all like figured out um, and, and Redux as well. And it was just like pretty full-fledged. Full but anyways, I ended up making, I went, once um, Create React app came out, that kind of threw a wrench in the boilerplate thing. But what I saw was like, oh man, like I was also building a bunch of Node apps at the time. And I was like, shoot, I really want something like Create React app but for like node mm -hmm. and my plan was to build something like Next.js, but I couldn't figure out how to do it at the time. So instead of trying to do the hot module replacement on both the front end and the back end, I was like, well, I'm just building this node app right now. So let's just do the back end. And so I ended up building this like very similar, like Next.js create react app thing called backpack, um, mm, which was yep. uh, my first like open source project. And that was just, again, sort of like create React app for node backends uh, or express apps. It's sort of a CLI tool. And I remember I tweeted that out and I think Guillermo Rausch, like the CEO of Zite, like, mm -hmm. like creator of Mongoose and socket.io, tweeted, retweeted it and that exploded. And then it was like the number one project on GitHub for a couple of days. And that was cool. And then after that, once I eventually figured out how to do the universal like hot module placement, I refactored the boilerplate, my server rendering and boilerplate uh, for React into something that's called Razzle. And that's still mm -hmm. around today. And it's used by like the BBC and Coinbase and like cars.com and a bunch of other companies. Uh, and the difference with Razzle is unique because it doesn't, unlike Next.js, which is more frameworky, Next.js handles data fetching and routing in addition to Webpack. Um, right. Razzle, all it does is Webpack. And so it actually works with like Angular, Vue, whatever you want, any JavaScript, and, and you can combine them too. Like you can be running both at the same time. Um, and so it's just a little bit more flex flexible and less frameworky. Uh, and so that, you know, Next.js wasn't what it, was, what it is today. Um, and so that was very popular. 
And then after that, uh, some utility libraries. Um, one was called React FNS. That was like a lodash for of like of, of render props and higher order functions. And then there were a couple others like the platform, which is like a suspense sort of um, a bunch of similar thing to React FNS, but for suspense components. Um, and then eventually Formic came out um, and I got the Formic and that was because the stuff I was building, I was working on this crazy administrative dashboard that had insane amounts of forms and insane business logic. And it was just the thing that I needed at the time. I open sourced that. And then I open sourced another thing most recently, my most recent project called TSDX. And this is like a TypeScript. Um, it's like create react app, but for TypeScript projects. So if you're mm -hmm. going to build a new react component and publish it, or you're going to build a design system, or you're going to build a, a CLI tool, or you're going to build anything that has to do with TypeScript, that's not like a node app basically. And you want to publish it and publish this pack as a package to NPM. Uh, you can use TSDX and it's just the missing CLI you want for TypeScript. And what it is under the hood is it's Formix build system. So okay. I abstracted away Formix build system and publishing and testing system. And to, cause basically what was happening was like, Oh, I want to build a new TypeScript project. I was just copy and paste this Formic config and all this setup and it just got really annoying. So basically right. abstracted that into a CLI and now everybody can use Formix build system for themselves. And it's really popular. It's like the, probably the fastest, one of the, one of the, well, aside from Formic, it's the fastest growing project of mine. And it's the num it's like the first link when you want to start a new TypeScript project now on type on the TypeScript docs. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Sorry, that's like sort of how I got into open source. Um, just scratching my own itch, basically. And yeah. then, you know, f figuring that if someone else, if it scratched someone else's itch, do that. And really like not, I guess, not even trying to do something totally new, but remixing and mashing up like two or three things that already existed. I think it's probably like the way I started. Uh, like Backpack was like create React app and Next.js, but for node backends, right? right? So it wasn't like a completely nuanced thing. People knew or could associate it. Where it's like, oh, it's like this, but that. And that actually yeah. helps with adoption. Yeah, I mean, that was one strategy. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. I'm not sure it would work. It would work now, but you know who knows. So, so one other thing that I'm curious about is, you know, as these projects grow, how how do you manage that? How do you manage the the communities and the the requests for changes and all that good stuff? Yeah, so it's it's definitely a challenge as they grow bigger. Um, I think my favorite range, if I had to pick one from a, I mean, I, I guess this is a weird range. Basically, like the most fun projects, the ones that have like. I'd say less than like 5,000 stars. And the reason for that, like it's over a thousand, but less than 5,000 where you have like a bunch of active contributors. But like, if you break something, it's not going to like crash lift. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Or, or NASA, like that just like uh -huh. when the expectation is not that it's like absolutely rock solid bulletproof. Um, also just like from iteration speed, people are like hyped and you can read the code bases usually like it's not like insane. And then, because what ends up happening is when you get to these like higher and higher star counts, uh, or just as projects age inevitably, right? They become more and more complex. API mm -hmm. footprints expand. They become harder to contribute to. Uh, people that do contribute don't understand the legacy or past work, and that gets hard. And so the, and so, and so as it relates to management, I've gone. I've tried it a bunch of different ways. Um, I think the the best app right now, the best project of mine as a management perspective is Formic and also TSDX. Um, 
and those are sort of DSDX especially is, is, is done really well. It's sort of managed by a core group of contributors and that all have push rights, but I'm the only one that has push rights to the packages to release rights. I should say, um, I like to do it that way where like I cut the releases or the releases are automated just so that that allows me to basically add as many contributors as I want. And as soon as you make a really good contribution, I'll like make you a, a contributor in TSDX after having a conversation with you. I find that that works the best. Some people just make everyone a contributor. I find that having the conversation first and just aligning on some core values and things right. to do is a helpful little, like even if it's just a Twitter DM or a Zoom, that helps a lot. And then, yeah, like ideally you, 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 you want to get as many people contributing as early as possible, but you also want to know that, you know, the thing that made your thing good was sometimes your, your actual contribution and the way you did it even. Right. And so you got to always sort of fight that, um, you know, when people want to change things. Um, so it's a balance. It's hard. It's very hard. Um, yeah, absolutely. What about you? Have you, what, when in your opens, you know, your open source sort of things, what, what projects have you seen that you like and how they're, or you think that they're managed well and, and what do you think about like how they get, how they handle it? Um, I mean, for the most part, I like the projects where either there's ample documentation or, you know, the, the person that I'm working with is, or the, the person who runs a project is, is reachable or somebody in the community is available to help. And then, you know, beyond, beyond that, I mean, a lot of it's just down to, it seems like the projects that really kind of knock it out of the park for me are the ones that know when something is not their bailiwick. And so then they're, they're like, you know, you know, it, it's the simple set of things or it solves a very specific problem. And, you know, and so they'll, they'll tell people no when they ask for features. Yeah. No is the most powerful world on GitHub. Um, my opinion. And the, uh, it is a hard thing to do um, without hurting people's feelings. Yeah. But it is a necessary sort of behavior. Um, Cause you've seen libraries. I'm sure you all have, where they just, if they just sort of have API diarrhea and yes. just, or, or every time you go to use it, it's different. Yep. I hate that too. Um, just like too much churn. Um, that sucks. So, um, and there's power in saying no, right. There's power in keeping your tool, um, scoped, right. It can't be everything to everyone. Um, and that's, it's also interesting. People are very hesitant to fork things on GitHub now. Uh, it didn't used to be people yeah. would run forks all the time, but I feel like now it's less common. It's kind of an aggressive thing now too. Like you're running a fork of someone, you're going to rename it. Like that doesn't happen as very, as, as, as often <laughs> maybe, as maybe it used to. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely still there. And like I fork a ton of stuff all the time. So I don't know, hopefully that'll make a comeback. I think it helps with the collaborative nature of GitHub if people fork things. It just helps, right? Yep, absolutely. So I guess the, the last part of the interview, I'm just going to ask. So you're moving into going full-time on Formic. So, so what's the story there? Like what prompted it? What's the process? What's happening with Palmer Group? Yeah. yeah. So. Good, good, good question. So basically, we're our existing clients. Nothing's happening. They're basically. I'm just pulling, stepping back from those projects. Replaced myself there, um, mm -hmm. but replaced myself with awesome people. And um, what's happening with Formic is uh, formed a new company, Formic Inc., and the IP rights transferred to it. Um, and basically, the way that it makes it will make money is selling um, sort of satellite systems that are built on top of Formic, the open source right. project. 
Um, and what that means is open source Formic not going anywhere. It's still an open source MIT licensed product. Um, but the similar to the way that Gatsby is like building build systems around the open source core of Gatsby, right. um, Formic will be building new tools around the open source core of Formic. That includes um, a storage system, which is actually available right now. If you go to formic.com, you can use Formic cloud storage. And what that is, it's an API endpoint. You can send your form data, uh, basically log it to a spreadsheet in the cloud. And then you can set up like email responders, uh, Slack notifications, webhooks, Zapier stuff based off that submission. And this is just so you don't have to code another backend endpoint for one silly form. Uh, right. Great for contact. And you also, if you want full control over all aspects of the user experience, Right. You don't want to type form in this situation. You don't want SurveyMonkey. You don't want to, you right. want to keep, you know, you want that contact form to look dope. And also you don't want it to, you don't want to compromise on your tools, right? You don't want to have some like weird HTML only thing when you have this beautiful Gatsby site, right? Like you want to have full command and control, but you also don't need to like build an entire serverless backend for your contact form, right? That seems like overkill. So that's where this service sort of sits right now. And then what I'm working on at the moment is um, the new form builder, which will be built on, on top of Formic as well. Uh, that will not be open source and neither is the storage system. Again, this is all the dot-com stuff. Uh, what's cool about the form builder is that it actually, uh, they're all, they're, it is a classic form builder, the way that Typeform and SurveyMonkey are. Right. Um, and to a person in the marketing department, there is no, there's going to be no difference except that ours is super spiffy. But for the developers, it's like very much built with developers in mind. And so what makes us different than like a type form or a survey monkey is you'll be able to integrate the form builder directly into your application and actually use your own components. So if you use Formic, you can actually make, you like basically take advantage of the form builder with your own components um, so that you don't need to switch design systems or send your user to a different URL. Um, any Formic compatible field will actually work with the form builder, uh, which is kind of cool. So basically you get your own type form for your app or your website uh, that the marketing department can use and you can integrate with and basically uh, host if you want to um, or not, or you can just, again, just use it like you would to type form or something like that as well. Um, but the idea is just basically, and it's all built with Formic as well. Um, there'll be bindings for the most popular component libraries too. So you don't need to just like build all like, if you don't have a design system yet, or you're just making a new one, you can like start, you don't have to start from scratch if, unless you want to. Um, so there'll be stuff for like material UI and semantic UI and chakra and blueprint and all the fa like popular right. react component libraries. If you want to like, if you're using one of those, then there'll be, you know, ones out of the box. But then also if you have your own component library and you want to swap in your checkbox group for the default one, you can totally do that and it will render that. Um, which is kind of cool because you, again, this like, it's 2020 folks. We don't need to be sending users to a different URL to collect survey data. Um, right. that's crazy. That is insane. Um, especially with like privacy and all that other stuff. Right. And if you want to store the data on formic.com on this, in this cloud storage, you totally can. If you don't, you just want to use the form builder aspect to like speed up development and uh -huh. you want to send it onto your backend. You could totally do that too. Don't care. Uh, the important thing is that you're, that we're helping you build a better, more accessible um, form and ultimately deliver a better user experience. So that's where we'll sort of, that's like the first two aspects, aspects of it. Third aspect of it is analytics. So we'll be launching Formic Analytics later this year, which will give users, uh, sorry, developers like really, really granular information 
uh, around um, form sessions uh, on a quantitative level. Not just, you know, right now you can look at like a hot jar, you can record the session, you can watch it, get some qualitative understanding of what people are doing. But if you need like, how long was this person inside of this field? Or is this field being returned? What's the, this particular field's completion rate on Android mobile in Estonia? Like you can do that. Um, and the, the thinking there is, you know, Sentry or like TrackJS or one of the you know, error logging companies will catch runtime JavaScript errors for you but they will not catch like a black hole in your form that that's preventing users from like submitting, right? Because it's not runtime, it may just be logic. And so that's where the service will help you identify. And so if you're a company that lives or breathe, like lives and breathes, lives and dies, sorry, off its conversion, maybe your lead, lead or some sort of lead capture, if you're like a bank or your mortgage company, your credit card company, your an healthcare company, you live and breathe by your like sign up forms or some of these forms, you know, you'll be able to boost your conversion rates and identify opportunities for improvement with right. Formic Analytics. So those are the, basically the first set of products there that we'll be working on and launching later this year. And probably by the time people like hear this podcast, parts of the things I just mentioned will be out the door. Yeah, probably. We're, we're a few months ahead on this show, so. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead. No, that, 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 that's basically it. And then, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the... Uh, the gist of the, the the platform offering as it stands now, and we're super excited to launch the the officially in the next few in the next few weeks. So look out for that, and that'll be really fun. And uh, yeah, the rocket ship starts from there. Hopefully, um, there's just so much to do <laughs> around forms that hasn't been done, and for for developers specifically, that um, yeah. it's such a fundamental part of the internet. It's been around since the first HTML spec, basically. Um, but it hasn't changed in like 10 years. Right. Super cool. Well, if people want to find this stuff or connect with you online some way, how do they do that? So, um, I'm at, it's at Jared Palmer on Twitter for me at Formic HQ for, um, Formic's Twitter account. Uh, Formic.com is the home of Formic cloud. That's the name of the new service. Um, and github.com slash Formic, um, will get you there as well. So, uh, yeah, those are the, uh, the ways to get involved and um, we'll be doing some meetups in, in New York and sponsoring uh, the official react meetups coming up. So if you're interested in doing, getting involved there as well and yeah, that's, that's basically what, what's on the table. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Yeah. Um, do you have some stuff you want to shout out about? Sure. So I guess um, to, uh, I guess some of the uh, the new the new stuff that I'm playing with. Um, there's this really really under the radar project that Shopify is working on right now called uh -huh. Remote UI. This is a very interesting project that I would love to give a shout out to. I'm playing with this week, it basically uh, allows allows it's allowing them to empower their new app store or their new like integration layer, uh, and it lets you basically sandbox React apps in web workers. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, and basically the way that React Native um, for web works in a very similar way. Uh, React Native DOM, sorry, not React Native Web. Uh, React Native DOM, which is like React Native Web, but in a web worker. Um, and it takes a very similar approach to React Native in, in the sense that um, unlike React DOM, uh, in React Native, there's a bridge to the native, to the native platform. Mm -hmm. And this does that, but it uses a web worker. And what's cool about it is it, lets, it basically solves the problem of like an iframe um, and lets you embed 
semi-trusted JavaScript and very sandboxed React apps into your own existing applications, but give them control over the components they use and the APIs they have access to. So Shopify is using this to like build out some new tools. We're playing around with it for some cool block stuff around the component, the form builder, and yeah, super new project that's coming out. So I found it this week called Remote UI. Very cool. Um, I'm going to throw in some picks that are a little bit more um, entertainment focused, I guess. <laughs> so I just barely finished um, The Man in the High Castle on Ooh, Amazon Prime. It, you it think? was really good. I really enjoyed it. The, the ending, I kind of wish they'd given us a little bit more, but at the same time, I kind of just sat there and envisioned the possibilities for a little bit. So I'm kind of glad that they didn't give us as much. So yeah, but uh, fascinating TV show, TV series. Really good. Did you yeah. see, uh, if you like that and you haven't already played around with it, I've seen it. Um, Altered Carbon is really good too. Not like uh, exactly the same, but like just a sci-fi thing, but it's also like one of these amazing stories. That's on unravels. Netflix, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't watched that one at all. Um, I'm looking forward to watching The Expanse, the next season of The Expanse. Oh, I got to check that out. Yeah. The TV show is exceptionally well done. Really? Um, okay. And the books, are, the books are terrific, so... Yeah, usually I'm 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 come down on one side or the other, but but they were both just awesome. They've done a really good job on them. So yeah, getting ready to watch that, and then um, I think that's it. I think that's all I've got. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming and talking to me for forty five minutes or so. And thank you, always a pleasure. Um, love the podcast. Love what you guys do. Yeah, it's fun to just dive in and see where people come from. So yeah. Very All right, cool. well, we'll, Thanks we'll again, wrap Matt. up, folks. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.